So we're in our new series, Open Our Eyes. I want to take a minute and talk about the app because uh, we've worked hard to get just the right one and it has so many uses. And uh, so Pastor Derek, who just led us in prayer, uh, put it out there to all the staff and even enticed us with a prize. He said the first people that get signed up for this. So he put it out to about 30 people and after a week he sent a next text. He said, okay, eight of you have responded. The rest of you are still you know, thinking about it. And I realized, whoa, I'm not one of the eight. So I grabbed one of our 20-somethings and said, come here, come here, come here. Show me how to do this. Now, if you need that kind of help, nobody's going to shame you. Just go to the gym. There's a whole a table set up just right inside the gym, just to the left. And Pastor Derek himself will be there can help you. It's no big deal to get it set up, and then you'll know how to use it. So it's getting over that hurdle. Um, somebody would be glad to help you if you just ask. And uh, they know how to help that way. So uh, don't be shy. It's the weekend. Today our Bible passage, you know, is there's an account of Jesus encountering two blind men. And uh, Jesus is given credit on numerous occasions for healing people who are blind. And these blind in the story really represent us. Because every one of us, I mean, that's spiritually where we start. We're, we're blind or we have blind spots which, you know, we've all got them, things that are in plain sight, and we just plain miss it. I mean, we see it, but we don't see it. I mean, let me prove it to you. Here, here's a little test. Okay, true confessions. Who missed the moonwalking bear on the first lap? <laughs> Unbelievable. He was right there. That's what we're talking about today. We've got these blind spots, and here we come to God's Word. And Jesus is pretty much completing his ministry. He's done most all of his miracles. He's done most all of his teaching. He's gathered the disciples. He's deb debated the religious experts in the law. He's pretty much finished with all that. He's setting his sights on Jerusalem, going to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which is a feast they would do every year to, to celebrate God's deliverance. And they would do the same thing year after year after year. They would eat the same food. They would tell the same stories. They would use the same script just to remind them himself, here's what God has done. And this year, Passover is going to be different. And Jesus is, begins telling them in advance, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. And I will uh, be turned over to the Romans, and they will, I will be whipped and humiliated and uh, then crucified. And he tells his disciples this on several occasions, but they just don't seem to see the dancing bear. He's told them he will also be raised from the dead on the third day. That's the power of God. And their responses have been bizarre. They ask, what's going to happen to us? Like it's all about them. I mean, one time after Jesus gave them this insight, they broke into a, um, an argument. <laughs> they thought they were behind Jesus' back, saying, well, boy, without Jesus here, which one of us would lead this thing? Who's, who would be in charge? Who's the most important? Who's the greatest? And another time they were bewildered and concerned. It's like they're blind to the truth. They just can't see it. They can't seem to get in focus that here's Jesus, and he's God in human flesh, and he's setting out the order of the kingdom of heaven, which is really the reign of God in people's lives. And Jesus is the ultimate authority on everything, and he's putting himself at the head of the line to pay the price for sin that has corrupted the world that God created and loves. So this includes dying to self and following God's plan. And Jesus is the first and the biggest and the best example of this, leaving heaven to come live here, living among God's people for 30 or so years, and then sacrificing himself as the atoning sacrifice for sin. So he's headed to Jerusalem to fulfill God's plan that was in the scriptures for the Savior to die for the sin of the world, for yours 
and yours and mine. And the disciples are oblivious to all this. It's like they're blind or they have blind spots. They just don't seem to catch on to Jesus' authority or Jesus' priorities or Jesus' way of serving and suffering. They just don't get it. And they should. They should have by now. They should have made it their business to know the heart of the Savior. Jesus said, come walk from me, with me, learn with me, study me, see me as the Lord, recognize, figure out who I really am and follow me. And they've been at it for three years now, so they should know a whole lot more about it. You know, this last week, I went down to the beach with one of my grandsons, and we were going to make sandcastles. And that can be a lot of fun, but you, uh, location, 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 it's got to be important because uh, I wanted to be close enough to the water that if the kid wants to destroy the sandcastle, that's one thing. He's, he, he, that's his job. But uh, I didn't want to be too close for the waves. So somebody's helping us. One of these beaches that they would actually give you an umbrella and a chair and a towel, and they're walking out carrying all this stuff for us. And so I asked uh, the, the person that's doing all this, I mean, they've worked there all summer long at the beach. I said, is the tide going out or coming in? Because I didn't want to get, you know, where the, our castle would be destroyed by the, by the waves. And she said, oh, it's definitely going out. It went out all last week. <laughs> this is a true story. I, I was so flabbergasted. It's going out. It was going out all last week. Okay. So how do you work at the beach all summer and not know anything about the tide? I don't know. But... How do you walk with Jesus day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and not know that Jesus is about following God's will and way? It's a deny, denying yourself and serving others in the name of Christ and suffering if necessary and following God's plan. How do you not know that if you've been a follower for more than a day? See, the disciples completely missed it. And it's kind of uncomfortable, but they represent us. And some of us might have missed that too. In Matthew 20, it says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, taking the 12 aside because they're on a busy highway. Lots of people are going up to be pilgrims up to the Passover feast in Jerusalem, all headed up there. So he wants to talk just to the disciples. And he says to them, look, verse 18. I love that, how Matthew, sometimes it's translated, behold, but what it's saying is, gaze on this, notice this, think about this, look, especially with our theme, open your, our, our eyes. So we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the third time that he's given them this warning. By now they should see the moonwalking bearer. They should know what he's talking about. It shouldn't be surprising them. But after he said this, remember we covered this last week, James and John show up with their mom in front of Jesus. She gets down on her knees and she says, I have a petition to ask. And Jesus says, what do you want? And she says, when you come in your kingdom, put one of these guys on your right, put one of them on your left. James and John, my, my boys. I mean, this is from some of the people who've loved Jesus, walked with Jesus, committed their lives to Jesus, have served alongside of Jesus, but they have never adopted the Jesus way in their heart. Instead of putting God first and serving others, they're still self-promoting. Absolutely astounding. It went out all last week. 
I mean, the way of Christ puts God's will first. It serves other people. The way of the world is a me-first kind of way. And these two ways are in conflict with each other. And only one will win. It's like two sumo wrestlers pushing against each other, pushing and pushing. Eventually, one will succeed and one will fail. And we have a struggle going then in our hearts if we claim to be followers of Christ between the way of Christ versus our own natural promote myself to number one. So there will always be this collision of wills and both will not win. Only one. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? And they said to him, oh yeah, (laughs) yeah, we got that. And he said to them, well, you are going to drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. He says, you will drink it. James was actually the first martyr among the disciples. They hadn't even left the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit was poured out. The church is just growing leaps and bounds. And suddenly he's arrested in the night and put to death in prison. This caused other Christians to leave to say the persecution in Jerusalem is so great, we better go somewhere else. And it ended up spreading the gospel around the world. John took Mary and left and went to Ephesus and uh, his, if his brother was the first of the disciples to die, John was the last. He was the only one who died of natural causes, but he was even arrested and suffered on island of Patmos, and that's where he had this vision of Christ, and he wrote it down, and it's what we call the book of Revelation. He also wrote other books about love one another, because that Jesus said that was a new commandment, love one another. John was the only disciple who died of old age. Well, verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. I can't believe you said that, John. How would you ever think like that, James? Unbelievable. I mean, they're trying to sound pious and humble, but, you know, they're indignant. Why didn't I think of that first? You know, before James and John and their mom got there, I could have put myself first in line. And Jesus' great answer, which we didn't get to last week, starts in verse 25. It says, Jesus called them to him, and he said, So here he's got these two brothers that have just asked and been denied, so they're kind of pouting. And you got the other ten that are kind of mad at the ten for asking ahead of them. And so there's there's a bit of tension. It's a little awkward. And Jesus has them all in one spot, and here's what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Not in the future, not today. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying the values of the kingdom, if you're going to be great, you'll be the servant. If you want to be number one, be the slave. Follow the example of Jesus. He came to serve and to suffer and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gentiles he's talking about here isn't Gentile versus Jew. It's basically saying the rulers of the nations. In other words, here's the way of the world, the natural human order, versus here's God's way of doing things. Rulers exercise whatever authority they think they have over people. It's the way of the world to seek the highest possible place and to take delight in making full use of the authority that that place gives. So all the disciples suffer with too much concern for status, position, power. And there's a radically different value scale for the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus has been talking and talking and talking about it. They just haven't seemed to get it. And the world sees humility as a handicap, not as a virtue. 
And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be great in God's kingdom, then humble yourself and be the servant. Jesus is objecting to this misuse of power. Not so among you. This is not just for the future. He's saying, these are my values today in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God. This is a command for your present. Keep your eye on Jesus. Serve others with the love of Christ in your heart. Want to be great? Be a servant. Want to be first? Be the slave. Serve without recognition, even without appreciation. Can you guess without looking what's next in the text how the disciples responded to this? Well, the silence is deafening. And if you go look at the text, what you would expect to be next isn't there. I would expect James and John to say, oh, Jesus, we're so sorry, our bad. We should never, what were we thinking? Promoting ourselves that way. We should just serve you. Please forgive us. I would expect the 10 disciples to say, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. What were we thinking? Why would we be letting our pride get in the way? We had no good reason to be indignant. We, we ended up adopting there for a moment the values of the world that has polluted our thinking and clouded our perspective. We apologize, Jesus. Please forgive us. Let us do it your way. None of that's found in the book of Matthew. None of that's found in the book of Luke. None of it's found in the book of Mark or in the book of John. It's not there. They didn't say that. Because they didn't want to let go of it. They were all blind to their own self-promotion, their pride, their selfishness. It's, it's like they could see it in others, but not in themselves. You know, a few years back, a couple of psychologists created what they called the Johari window. I actually thought it was named after Joe and Harry, and I went and Googled it, and you could too. And yes, it is named after Joseph Luft and Harrington Ingham. And they came up with this, basically it's four boxes. It's too big there on the screen, so you don't get to see all of it. But in the top left box is what I know about me and what you know about me. That's kind of the arena. And then the one below that is what I know about me and what, fortunately, you don't know about me. And uh, that's kind of a facade where we hide stuff from other people so that we look better. And then over on the other side, it's what... Um, I know what is known to you, but I don't know about myself. It's a blind spot. And then the last box is what I don't know and what you don't know about us. And it's, uh, it's kind of unknown. It's, it's a blind as well. And Jesus has this great response. He says to all of his disciples, you are looking the wrong way. You are looking at the wrong things. You are blind to what I'm trying to show you and what I'm trying to tell you. But the values of the kingdom mean if you're going to be great, you be a servant. You serve other people. And if you want to be number one, you be the slave. Slaves serve without any recognition, no credit, no appreciation. And if you're going to follow the example of Jesus, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you've heard this before, haven't you? Because I've said it more than once even today. Because the idea is, it is hard for us, it's easy for us to understand, it is hard for us to adopt and to let go of those attitudes that are just like the world. Following, we need to follow Jesus' example. He was daily in communication with God. He was daily doing what God wanted him to do that day. He was focused on doing God's will, not on his own agenda, not on his own recognition or his praise or his creature comforts. And Jesus is telling his disciples, the ones who have said, I will follow you wherever you go. 
He's saying, follow me, serve by serving others. Keep your eyes on me. Jesus wanted them to listen to his voice, to look at their own life and make some corrections in their head and in their attitudes, in their goals, in their aspirations. He wanted to change their heart to what was most important. And God was talking to them, but they're deaf and blind spiritually, and they didn't know it. When we went on the men's retreat, Dr. Craig Hazen was the speaker, and this wasn't his main point, but at one point he said, God doesn't talk directly to me very often. He does talk to my wife a lot <laughs> about me. So if he's smart, he would listen to her. Fortunately for the disciples, before this moment got awkward, a crisis came up and they all got distracted. Two blind men began to beg for Jesus' attention. Look at verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, and look, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Which was exactly the same question he asked the mother of James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, which the, the word also sometimes here is compassion, which I think has more dignity to it. And Jesus, in compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. What a great prayer. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Last week, we looked at two disciples who come to Jesus and they ask for favors that they think they've somehow earned, but he can't give them. And this week, two blind men ask Jesus for mercy. They, they don't deserve it, and they know it. And they're asking for a miracle, and they know it. But when he asks them to be more specific, they beg him, open our eyes. Michael Green said, the request of the disciples for top spots in the kingdom shows their blindness. The request of the blind men shows their vision of who Jesus is and what he can do. We delve into this story a little more. You're going to find that not just Matthew. It's also found in Mark and in Luke. Now, it's kind of fun because, you know, if, all, if we all saw a, an accident or an event happen and then tried to write it down, there would be slight variations in, in what we saw. Not everybody saw the moonwalking bear. And one of the Gospels says that this is on Jesus' way into the city of Jericho. And one of them, Matthew says, it's on the way out of the city of Jericho. And it's kind of confusing because there's actually, at this point in history, there was an old Jericho, and then they had started a new Jericho. And so he could have actually been going out of one Jericho and into the other. In other words, both could be accurate. The, the, the blind men are going to be with other beggars where they're going to be where they hope to catch the most traffic going by. And then Matthew has two blind men, and Mark and Luke have one blind man. You say, well, is it one or is it two? Well, I'm guessing one, where you find one beggar, if a spot's working, pretty soon you're going to have more than one, aren't you? And uh, so there probably were more than one. Matthew tells us there were two. Um, I think it's Mark that tells us he's named Bartimaeus. 
uh, which I think is probably a clue that he became a, a fully devoted follower of Christ and was part of the church when it got started. So we don't know as many details as perhaps we would like. Luke tells us that on this same visit uh, into Jericho, in Jericho and through Jericho, that he, he healed blind Bart, the, the beggar on the road, probably one of the poorest guys in town. And at the same time, he invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector for the entire country. And um, they were, tax collectors were known for being crooked in those days, so he probably was the richest guy in the whole country. But both needed a work of grace. From the richest to the poorest, neither one could forgive their own sin. Neither one could get themselves right without, with God, without God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And Jesus did a work in both of them. Both were spiritually blind until Jesus gave them sight. So these blind men, Lord or Sir, which is a sign of respect, or was it more than that? Where were they really saying, Jesus, you are the Lord? The blind men seem to recognize who Jesus is, that he's the Lord. And he said, have mercy, which is God's unmerited kindness to needy people. And then they said, Son of David. Well, people knew that Jesus' father was really Joseph, Jesus claimed God is his father. This phrase, son of David, has messianic overtones. It's royal because King David was the greatest king that there ever was in Israel until Jesus showed up. And the Messiah was supposed to come from the, from the line of David, which Jesus did have that um, in his ancestry. But this would have been a phrase that maybe the Gentiles wouldn't understand. Son of David means, I think you are the next king. So Jesus is moved with compassion. In fact, in Matthew 9, it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This crowd, I don't know how you, when you look at a crowd, are they intimidating? Are you welcomed by the crowd? Are you excited, energized by them? Or do they wear you out? Jesus saw the crowd and he was moved because they seemed so helpless on their own. This crowd was unsympathetic. They were selfish. They were hardened towards suffering and need. They probably had compassion fatigue. And this attitude of the crowd, you're not powerful, you're not important, get out of the way, don't embarrass all of us, be quiet, be quiet. But Jesus heard them and called them to himself. Oh, this was Jesus' specialty. In fact, I, did you notice it said, Jesus touched their eyes. This is over and over in the Bible that Jesus would reach out with a touch. And in chapter 8, he touched a leper. That was supposed to make you unclean. He made the leper clean. He touched Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick with a fever. That was supposed to be ill-advised because you might get the, the disease. He healed her. He touched the eyes of another blind man in chapter 9. On the way, Jesus is touching people. You know, we live in a day and age where people seem to do less touching because a lot of people have been scarred by inappropriate touch. And touching sends a message that is communicating something deeper than words. So we have to be careful with the touch. Christ seemed to be generous with touches that showed genuine compassion for others. So he would touch in a spot where other people say, oh, that makes you unclean. And the Bible says what God has said is clean. Don't you say is unclean. Jesus' touch to these blind men gave them instantaneous sight. 
they received their sight, and it says they followed him. So does that mean they just kind of followed, they joined the crowd walking up to Jerusalem, or they actually followed him with their lives? I think, as I say, the, the fact that we know the name of one of them, I think he became a fully devoted follower of Christ. Dietrich was quoted as saying, it's easier for Jesus to give sight to the blind who believe in him than to make the scales fall from the eyes of the disciples who do not know to what degree they are still blind. I mean, these blind men beg Jesus to restore their sight. And Jesus, who's full of compassion and mercy for needy people and has the power that only God has, grants their request. And they follow Jesus. Now I wish there was another little paragraph in the text where we got to hear what they had to say. It's not there. They simply followed Jesus. There is another account of Jesus healing a blind man. He was in Jerusalem. It's written in John 9. The entire chapter is given to this man who was born blind and he was, he was healed and how the religious leaders who hated Jesus gave him grief because he had become a believer in Jesus because Jesus had taken him who was blind from birth and given him sight. And so I'm going to pick up the story in John 9 because that blind man says some very insightful things. In John 9, verse 24, it says, So for the second time the religious police called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. That was supposed to discount Jesus. But the ex-blind man said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. Here's what I know. One thing I know, I was blind, now I can see. They said to him, well, how did he do it? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have answered you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They says they reviled him. And he, they said, you are his disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not even know where he comes from. And the Mayan said, well, this is amazing. You don't know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does not his will, God listens to him. And never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you try to teach us? And they cast him out. He's saying, this guy has the power that only God has. He's from God. Why don't you see it? They didn't want to see it. They wanted intentionally to be blind because they admitted, yes, Jesus has God's power. Jesus is from God. We should be giving Jesus honor and respect and listening to his voice and following what he tells us. He's God. So verse 35, Jesus heard they cast him out, and having found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, the blind man, Jesus had put mud on his eyes and sent him to wash in a pool as an act of faith and obedience. So he had never actually seen Jesus. But a blind person would be very good at listening to voices. And actually this week I was with somebody and we were talking and we, somebody walked by and they didn't say anything and then after about 20 feet they turned around and they said, hey, are you a pastor? I said, what is it? How did he know? And he said, I said, well, yes, but how'd you know that? He said, 
I recognize your voice. We come to Christmas at the Shores. I said, wow. I thought I had a common face and a common voice, but he read. So we, we ended up talking, and he has family that come here to church regularly. So I think that's happening here. Jesus finds him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So let's draw some conclusions for ourselves. We all have blind spots. We do. We miss the moonwalking bear more times than not. And so let me ask some questions. You might want to write these down on the, the little page that you have here just to think about. What do you think you deserve from God? What do you think God owes you? What do you, what do you think you deserve? You know, God, I've been a good person. <coughs> I haven't, whatever, fill in the blank. And I've done this, and I'm regularly at church, and da-da-da. What do you think you deserve? Number two, what do you do when your expectations don't align with God's will or his promises in Scripture? And your expectations don't come true. What do you expect at that point? You know, when God's disappointed you. And number three, is your greatest desire to know and love God? Now, if your answer not loud, most of us here would say, well, yeah, sure. Just like the disciples when Jesus said, can you take, my, take this cup of suffering? But do you find your greatest joy in him? Or do you love God for what you get out of it? Ouch. Do I love God with a pure heart because of just the sheer joy of loving Jesus and being in his presence? Or is it because I get something out of it? See, God loves you. And Jesus is filled with compassion for the deepest needs of every person. These blind men said, Lord, we want to see Give us our sight. So they received their sight, and they kept their eyes on Jesus. They see, and then they savor the Savior. And my prayer for you, my prayer for all of us, is that we will be open to Jesus, to have him reveal our personal blind spots. If you were to ask him that, God, reveal my blind spots to me. And he begins to show you, and you realize, oh, I hadn't seen that. He's going to use things like Holy Scripture to cause you to think about things. He's going to use things like Holy Spirit to work in your heart, to open our eyes to the attitudes that we need to change if we are going to be truly, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Shall we pray? Dear God, I pray even in this moment that we will apply this to ourselves, that we will ask you to open the eyes of our hearts to see the blind spots that we've never seen before so that we will 
love you with pure hearts and follow you out of devotion for what you have done for us and that we will accomplish your will, your way in this world. Give us the strength, the courage, the tenacity that we need to live for you as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Thank you for these blind men and their request. Thank you for the warning for us of two disciples that asked for the top spots of ten that got indignant. Help us just to receive what you give to us with a grateful heart. In Jesus' name, amen.